really appreciate Brother Tim's message this morning on the important subject of reconciliation. A great many of the Lord's people don't understand the difference between the work of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. The word work, W-R-K, the word word, W-R-D, difference in two words is K and D. The work of reconciliation is an accomplished fact. The word of it brings joy and peace to the Lord's children. You might say, well, how do you know that you're reconciled to God experientially? By your faithfulness to Him. By your recognition that He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But being faithful in the house of God to honor His ordinances in the church of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and be faithful in your attendance in support of the church. That's the evidence that you are reconciled in your mind and heart experientially to the work that has been accomplished. I really appreciate the message and the distinction made this morning. Uh, this morning I'd like to look at Acts chapter 7 in particular. As we were reading, or I was reading the daily reading this past week, uh, got to chapter 7 I think on Thursday, and at the end of chapter 7 we have a record of the death of one of the great men uh, in the history of Christianity. His name was Stephen. And it's important to understand that uh, the seventh chapter uh, the importance of it and uh, how it plays a role in the history of the church. Uh, the book of Acts is a, a book of church history. And it's important that we study the book of Acts because it will teach us today what the church ought to be like, how the church ought to function, how the church ought to, to work, so to speak. Nothing's changed about that. We're 2,000 years down the road, and lots of things have changed in 2,000 years. People back then didn't drive cars to church. People back then didn't have cell phones and computers and televisions and all of those kind of things. Very blessed, weren't they? <laughs> Very blessed. You know, I saw a little thing the other day, and this man was interviewing two Amish men. And they said, how come the coronavirus hasn't affected you? They said, we don't have television. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Um, but anyway, um, the book of Acts gives us an accurate uh, account of the history of the church in the early days. And what did they do in the early days? They met, they sang, they prayed, they preached, and they fellowshiped. What do primitive Baptists do today? We meet, we sing, we preach, we pray, and we fellowship. That hasn't changed. For 2,000 years, the Lord in His infinite wisdom established the church, His church, to where it would not have to change in that regard. For 2,000 years, the Lord's people have been able to do that, no matter what was changing around them. They were able to do those things I've just mentioned that are essential in honoring the Lord. Uh, I believe if the apostles walked in here today, the Lord Jesus Christ, I think they'd feel quite at home. I think they would say, well, it's good to see a people continue on in the way that was established back in our days, in our lives, in our ministry. And that's very, very important. The seventh chapter of the book of Acts is the longest chapter of 28 chapters in this book. It's the longest chapter and one of the most important. I hope you'll be able to see that uh, as we move through this. Now the seventh chapter of the book of Acts is a declaration of Israel's history by Stephen. Now just who was this Stephen? You're going to find one word going to characterize Stephen. That's the word full or fullness. You go back to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. As it opens up, you find where the Grecian widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. They were not being neglected purposely. But what had happened, the apostles in the early days 
in addition to their role of teaching and preaching and ministering the word, they were also ministering in a financial and a physical way to the widows of that day. But the disciples had grown to such an extent, the apostles had spread thin, and they just couldn't get around. So there was some murmuring. Now, the murmuring wasn't right no matter what. Murmuring's never right. It shows a lack of thankfulness that you should have to God. There's never a reason that we should murmur. But there was murmuring. It's the first time in the New Testament church where you find the word murmuring. So they were murmuring, and the apostles' solution was this. They said to the disciples, look out among you and find seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, that we may appoint unto this business. Now, there were seven men. Seven is the number of completion and perfection in the Word of God. They determined that seven men would be able to relieve the situation and solve the problem. But it wasn't just any seven men. These seven men would be of honest report. They just couldn't be somebody that there was question about. They had to be of honest report. Their reputation was important. They'd be full of the Holy Ghost, which means that they were very spiritually minded men who put the Lord and His church and kingdom first. And they were men of wisdom. All people aren't that way. So we see these seven men had to uh, possess these qualities, these characteristics, these qualifications. So they looked out, they found seven men, and we have a record of the names of these seven men. Of these seven men, two will be mentioned as we go forward. One was Philip and one is Stephen. Now, the name Stephen comes from a Greek word, Stephanos, which means the victor's crown. There's two words for crowns in the New Testament. One is diadema, which we get our English word diadem, which is a royal crown. Now, a royal crown may be possessed or had through an inheritance, but not the victor's crown. That has to be earned. And therefore, the word Stephanus is where we get our word Stephen from. It has to be earned. And you'll see that Stephen's name fit him to a T. So we see that Stephen and Philip will be highlighted later. But we're told something about Stephen. And the seven men, there's something said about Stephen, not said about the other six, said that Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost and full of faith. Now, I told you there was a word that would characterize Stephen. It's the word fool. Now, everybody's full of something, right? <laughs> Some people are full of foolishness. You ever been around somebody and it's just, I mean, every day is nothing but foolishness going on with them. There's, there's some people who's just uh, uh, full of anger. That's not good. Some people are full of mischief. Uh, full of mischief. Uh, you know, some of the younger kids a lot of times have that. And the bad thing about it is they never outgrow it. And so you can be full of a lot of different things. But we find here where Philip, excuse me, Stephen was full of faith. You know, in the book of Ephesians in uh, chapter 5, uh, the apostle tells the church at Ephesus, it says, Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. See, wine in excess will cause you to act differently than you would if you didn't have wine in you. And that's usually not good. You wind up saying something you shouldn't say, doing something you shouldn't do, regretting something that took place while you were under the influence of wine. But it's good to be under the influence of the Spirit of God. If you're under the influence of the Spirit of God, and the word full in the Bible means to be controlled by. Controlled by. So you need to be controlled by the Spirit of God and not controlled by some type of substance. Be controlled, not by this world, 
be controlled by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. And so we find that Stephen was full of faith and also of the Holy Ghost. Yes, he was a man of good report. He was a man of wisdom. He was a man that was uh, of the Holy Ghost. And he was full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost or full of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we start reading a little bit about Phil, uh, Stephen right after this. And we find that Stephen was also full of the power and spirit of God. And God had given him a gift of where he was actually able to heal people. Not within his own self, but he had the gift of healing. And uh, so this was an extraordinary type thing. To the point where there were those in the synagogue of the Libertines who didn't like this. And so they began to bring charges against Stephen. And they brought false witnesses against Stephen. And they charged him with being using blasphemous words against the temple, against Moses, against the law, and even against God. Again, these were all false witnesses because Stephen certainly wasn't guilty of any of this. And so they went and they got him. When he wasn't expecting them to come, they got him and brought him before the council and charged him with all of this. And you come to the end of Acts chapter 6. And as he's before them in Acts chapter 6, they're charging him with all this blasphemy. And the Bible makes this statement about him. It's not made about anybody else. It says, they all looked upon him and Stephen had the face of an angel. The face of an angel. Well, I'm not exactly sure what the face of an angel was, but the word angel means messenger. It was something about the face of Stephen that gave testimony that Stephen was a messenger of God. As I look back in the Bible, I find other similar situations. I find where Moses, you go to the book of Exodus, uh, I believe chapter 34 in the book of Exodus, you'll find where Moses had a meeting with God. And I thought about this the other day. You know, if somebody said, where are you going, Moses? And Moses said, well, I'm, I've got a meeting with God this morning. Oh, <laughs> wouldn't that be something? I had a meeting with God this morning. And I got to go on top of the mountain, and, and, me, and the, me and God got a meeting. It's scheduled at a certain time. And I don't want to be late, you know. And so he went on top of the mountain, and he had a meeting with God. When he came back down, he didn't realize this when he came back down, but his face shined so brilliantly that the people couldn't look on the face of Moses. And Aaron couldn't look on the face of Moses. And as they told Moses, Moses then put a veil over his face so that he could talk to the people. The, the glory of God, the brightness of God on that mountaintop meeting with, uh, with Moses, it just, uh, some of it just, you know, uh, fell on Moses. And when Moses came down, uh, the people just couldn't, it was so bright even on him, the people couldn't look at his face as he talked to them. So he put a veil upon his face. And Paul makes reference to this in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Except now he says the Jews, instead of having this veil over the face of Moses, they have a veil over their heart. And I won't try to get into that this morning. All right. But anyway, we see how bright the face of Moses shined. When the Lord Jesus Christ was here, we read where he went on top of a mountain called the Mountain of Transfiguration. And he was transfigured between two Old Testament characters. One was Moses and one was Elijah. And the Bible says that his face shined as the sun. Is there anything brighter than the sun? Nothing is brighter than the sun, right? And you go to Revelation chapter 1, you'll find where the Apostle John saw a glorified picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find 
uh, some wonderful words describing him, you know, his hair, his eyes, his mouth, his feet, everything. But it says his face shined, his countenance shined as the strength of the sun. Out of the ordinary, something special, something uh, exceptional, correct? Well, there's something special about the countenance of Stephen. Something special about the countenance of Stephen. They looked at his face, he had the face of an angel. It's something good, something positive. Here's a messenger of God, and God is going to let them know he could not be guilty of the things you've charged him with. We would not have this face of an angel. He's my messenger to give testimony. And then chapter 7 opens up, and the high priest asks a question to Stephen. Are these things so? And now the longest chapter in the book of Acts is an answer to that question. See, some questions cannot be answered with yes and no. I know when our children were growing up, they'd ask me a question. They said, Dad, yes or no? I said, well, no. Well, well, that's okay. Well, we'll take a longer answer. (laughs) Uh, Some questions cannot just be answered yes or no. You have to give a few details, correct? And this chapter proves it right here. This entire chapter is an answer to the question of the high priest. Now, I'll have to admit, sometimes preachers can give long answers, you know, uh, and and I've I've known preachers that way. I I preached one time, we we left the church. In fact, when we was down here on Gallatin Road, we left the church, got in the car, I asked a question, and I never said a word until we went to bed. Went home, sat down, had some coffee, I never said another word until we went to bed, and went to bed, the question still wasn't fully answered. (laughs) You would never guess who that was. But anyway, uh, some of you know. Anyhow, uh, here is proof, though, that sometimes a lengthy answer is appropriate. Stephen gives a lengthy answer to this question. Now, when you read the seventh chapter, which we're not going to do, you're going to find he's going to go back and start with Israel's history, first of all, when they were created. You go back to Genesis chapter 12. Here's where God called Abraham out of the land of the earth of child age, told him to go get himself away from that land, from his kindred, go to a land I will show thee that I will give thee. Abraham left that land and walked by faith. He entered that land. Later on, he would have Isaac. Isaac would have Jacob. Jacob would have 12 sons. And we have the creation or the formation of the nation of Israel. And then he gives the history of when they were down in the land of Egypt. Obviously, he's hitting the high spots because there's chapters after chapters after chapters describing all the details of what he's going to summarize here in Acts chapter 7. And he describes their deliverance out of the land of Egypt. He describes how they crossed the Red Sea in their wilderness journey and then how they entered into the land of Canaan. He begins to bring to their attention their heroes in the past. There was Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Joshua, Moses, David and Solomon. He brings to their attention the blessings of the tabernacle and the blessings of the temple. And that's kind of where he ends in the Old Testament there with Solomon. And then he, the climax of his whole answer to this question is the fact that they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and they crucified him. That's the climax to his answer in Acts chapter 7. Over 50-some verses is, contains his answer to the question of the high priest, are these things so? That answer proved these things were not so. That answer showed they were guilty of the very things they were charging him with. 
because they had rejected the leaders that God had sent them. They had rejected their deliverers that God had sent them. They rejected Moses. They rejected uh, uh, the law. And they rejected God himself. They rejected his commandments. They were all rejected. All of them were rejected by Israel. And in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had turned the temple into a den of thieves. Remember, the Lord went in there, and he took a scourge of cords, and he drove out the money changers, turned their tables over, drove them out of there, and said, it is written, my father's house, we call the house of prayer. You made it a house or a den of thieves. That's what they turned the temple into. And they are charging Stephen. He showed me his answer. They were guilty of all of these things. God sent them to deliver, and Moses, in the beginning, they rejected Moses. Remember, it was 40 years old, and he thought they would know that he was sent to deliver them. They rejected him. It was 40 years later, he comes back. This time they receive him, and he, by God's power, delivers them. Joseph, in the beginning, was rejected by his brothers. They hated him. They envied him and tried to kill, uh, were going to kill him, and ended up selling him to the uh, Ishmaelites who took him down to Egypt. But later on, the second time Joseph appears unto them, makes himself known unto them, we find where Joseph will deliver them because he's now managing the entire empire of the Egyptian, uh, of the land of Egypt down there, where they had seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Had not he been in control and managing all that through God's providence, they all would have perished. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here 2,000 years ago, was rejected. His kingdom was rejected. His gospel was rejected. His works were rejected. His words were rejected. But I can assure you, he's coming a second time. <laughs> he's coming a second time, and, and all those who reject him the first time, they shall see him. And he will come, and he will deliver them, just like Moses delivered Israel, just like Joseph delivered them. And the Lord Jesus Christ will deliver his elect family out of this world and take them home to glory. Okay? So his answer, 50-some verses in his answer right here, to show them that he's not guilty, but actually they're guilty of all the charges they brought against him through false witnesses. His face is that of an angel. The Bible then says that they were uncircumcised in heart and in ears. The word circumcision plays an important role of church doctrine in the New Testament. In the last part of Romans chapter 2, the apostle tells us that a spiritual Jew is one whose heart has been circumcised in contrast to a natural Jew who's physically, uh, who has experienced circumcision outwardly and physically. See, circumcision, all males are circumcised on the eighth day. That was a seal or a sign of, the uh, of uh, God's covenant with Israel. Starting back with Abraham and them. It was an outward physical act symbolic of an inward spiritual act that only God could perform. Outward circumcision is a picture of inward circumcision of the heart. That's when the hardened heart of stone is taken out and the heart of flesh is put in, you see. But he charges them being uncircumcised in heart but also in ears. Till the heart's changed, the ear can't hear. They're uncircumcised in the heart, uncircumcised in the ear. And the Bible says, when they heard these things, when he gave his answer here in Acts chapter 7, when they heard these things, it says they were cut to the heart. Now I want you to pay special attention to something here. The heart is that physical organ inside my chest that as long as it keeps pumping, I can keep preaching. 
It's what keeps me alive. It's what keeps you alive. Isn't it amazing? This organ right here is doing this right now in everybody's chest here this morning. And it's keeping me alive. It's pumping blood throughout my body. It's called the circulatory system. It's a muscle. But in the Bible, the heart is referred to, generally speaking, as a seat of emotion where feeling comes out. All right? In the book of Acts, 17 times in the book of Acts, the word heart is referred to. 17 times. Every time there's something about the heart that's said that's different. 17 different words describe the condition of the heart in the book of Acts. In addition to other things such as singing, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with what? Making melody where? In your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, saying it with grace, where? In your heart to the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9, Jeremiah said, I thought I'd not speak in the name of the Lord anymore, but his word was in my heart as a fire in my bones, and I was weary and forbearing, and I could not stay. The Bible uses the word heart over and over and over again, to teach us things about our feelings, our emotions, and our lives. When it comes to giving, in the book of 2 Corinthians, what the Apostle Paul said, that every man as he so purpose in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So when you give, you need to see how's that making you feel on the inside. Are you giving grudgingly? Are you giving out of necessity because you know you're supposed to do that? And you're really not doing it because you're happy to do it. You're doing it because you know you have to do it. You're supposed to do it. Well, that's sad, isn't it? God doesn't love that kind of giver. He loves a cheerful giver. As every man so purpose where? Right in his heart. So let him give. The heart is just used over and over and over again in the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 3 and 1, he speaks about, Paul says, You are our epistle, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living heart in fleshly tables, of the heart and not of stone. Now over here in the 36th uh, chapter, I believe it is, in the book of Ezekiel, you're going to find where the Lord said, I will, uh, I will give you a new spirit, and I will take out the hard and stony heart and give you a heart of flesh to replace it. Now we got two types of hearts here. we got one that's hard and stony, one's a heart of flesh. All right? Flesh, of course, indicates life. Hard and stony heart. There's no life in a rock, no life in a stone. You can talk to a stone. You can, uh, you know, you can rub it. <laughs> you can do anything you want to. To a stone, there's not going to be a response. Pour water on it, hit it with a hammer, rub it, talk to it. Whatever you want to do to a stone, there's not going to be any kind of response. But flesh is different. I can feel that. I can feel that, you see. So what he's illustrating here is that God is the great physician who's performed heart operations, heart transplants since the beginning of time and will continue to the last hour of promise comes in this world sometime between conception and death. God does a heart transplant. He's got a 100% record, by the way, of success. He's never lost anybody on the operating table. He's never, uh, uh, you know, uh, made a, had a failure. He's never... Uh, Falling short of any of this, he's got a 100% success rate in heart transplants. I've had heart surgery before. I was 21 years old. They opened me up just like they do with bypass surgery, repaired a hole in my heart I had ever since I'd been born. 
You know, I'm, I'm thankful it was successful. It was back during a time when it was just getting off the ground, so to speak. But anyway, God is 100% successful, always has been, always will be. So a heart transplant takes place in regeneration when you're created in Christ Jesus. And God takes out the hardened, stony heart that can't receive a thing. When that hardened, stony heart's in there, 1 Corinthians 2.14 applies. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, because they're foolish unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. He takes that heart out, gives your heart a flesh. Now you can understand, now you can hear, you see. You don't hear and understand to get that heart. You hear and understand because God gave you that heart. It's very important to get the horse in front of the cart, isn't it? All right. If you go back to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we have a sharp contrast of the heroes. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter, a Jewish apostle, has a Jewish congregation. He has a Jewish message about a Jewish Messiah. He proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. He proclaims to them and declares to them, this man Jesus of Nazareth was God's beloved Son who came into this world who lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life here, went to Calvary, laid down his life, made an offering, sacrifice to the Father, and therefore that work brought about reconciliation. That great work brought about justification. That great work brought about redemption. It brought about total and complete salvation. That's all declared, you see. On the day of Pentecost, Peter declares that message. And when he got through preaching... There was a cry from the multitudes that were there. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? As many as were pricked in the heart. They were pricked in the heart. Those here in Acts chapter 7 are cut to the heart. There's a lot of difference, is it not, between being pricked in the heart and cut to the heart. The reason these were cut to the heart is because they were uncircumcised in heart and in ears. They didn't have a heart to receive it, didn't have an ear to hear it. But those in Acts chapter 2 is a different situation. They were pricked in the heart and they cried out. Men and brethren, not just men, but men and brethren. We're men by nature. We're brethren in Christ, you see. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And the apostle Peter had the right answer. He didn't always have the right answer prior to the crucifixion of Christ. But check all his answers out after the crucifixion of Christ. You'll find he got them. He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice, he didn't say you receive eternal life. He said, You receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's a lot of difference in that. Repent, be baptized. Well, how does anybody repent? Romans 2 4 says, The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Outside of that, man can't repent. Repent and be baptized. That's what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, everyone, in the name of Jesus Christ, for that is because of the remission of sin. The Savior that was anointed to remove your sins, you be baptized in his name. You identify with him. You walk after him. You love him. You honor him. You praise him. That's what it's all about, you see. So Peter preached, and they were pricked in the heart. Stephen gives a great declaration of truth in the history of Israel and they're cut to the heart and they're extremely angry and mad with Stephen. What a, what a difference of response. They're so angry, they're going to rush upon him and come upon him with gnashing of teeth and they're going to stone him. We find where Stephen began this discourse. If you go back and look in Acts 7-2 by speaking about 
the God of glory. Now that's a very important part. Always has been, historically speaking. The glory of God has always been at stake. When you study the tabernacle, go back and start studying the tabernacle, beginning in Exodus chapter 25, it goes through Exodus 40. God devoted more time to the tabernacle than he ever did to the work of creation. The tabernacle, all the instruction, blueprint of the tabernacle are given. You come to chapter 40, and you're going to find a phrase repeated over and over and over again. And Moses finished the work of building the tabernacle as God showed him in the mount. As God showed him in the mount. As God showed him in the mount. And when he got all done, guess what happened? The glory of God filled the, temp- the tabernacle. The glory of God filled it. When Solomon came along years later and built the temple, go to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, and you'll find something happened once he got the temple completed and finished it. When he, co- he did all God commanded, finished the work of the temple, the temple's finished, and then it says, the glory of God filled the temple. The glory of God filled it. What was it that Moses wanted to see back in Exodus chapter 33 with God? Lord, show me what? Show me your glory. Well, what was on the mind of, uh, of the lady that had Ichabod, named one of her children Ichabod? What was on her mind? She got a report that Eli had died. She got a report that his sons were slain, which one of them was her, her husband. And she got a report that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken. And when she heard that report, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken. When she had that child, she passed away. Before she did, she named him Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? It means the glory of God has departed. The glory of God has departed. Because the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God and the power of God. When it fell in the hands of the Philistines, she was so heartbroken about that, she named one of her children Ichabod. Now, I never would name one of my children Ichabod. I don't even like the sound of that. Uh, but anyway... Uh, it, it meant something. Biblical names mean things. They're significant. People name their children after events and after acts and uh, after places and experiences along the way. And she named him Ichabod and wrote above the door, the glory of God has departed. The Lord Jesus Christ comes into this world. You come to John 1.14. It says, for the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, which means the word dwelt means tabernacled. For the word, W-O-R-D, the second person of the Godhead, dwelt among us, tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten Son of God. The glory had departed the temple when Christ came, and they rejected God's glory in his, pers- in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Said so we beheld his glory. So now God's glory that existed in the tabernacle and in the temple has now come in the person of his son, but he was rejected, wasn't he? And that glory left the Jewish people. What's the most important thing in the church today? I might get a list of a number of things, but I'm going to go to Ephesians 3.21. Unto him be glory in the church, world without end. World without end means to the end of time, glory be to God in the church. Everything we do here is to bring glory to God. When we sing, it's to bring glory to God. It's not to highlight somebody that's got a great gift and talent. I'm thankful for the, for the wonderful voices we have here at Bethel. But I've noticed this over the years. Every congregation has a mixture 
uh, of uh, abilities when it comes to singing, right? As far as the natural aspect is concerned, some people could uh, sing well enough to go and sing at the Grand Ole Opry, maybe, if given the chance. It wouldn't be me, all right? <laughs> some people can't sing very well at all. But when all the voices join together, somehow or another it comes out harmonious. You ever notice that? Like this morning, everybody's voice, every brother, every sister, they, from the, you know, the children, the adults, from the youngest to the oldest, when they all were making melody in their heart to the Lord, it was beautiful. Beautiful. He gave God the glory. Hymns are designed to give God the glory. They're not designed to entertain you. They're designed to give God the glory. When men pray, when we have prayer, you want a prayer that honors and glorifies God. When, when the gospel is preached, if the gospel doesn't glorify God, you had not heard the gospel. The gospel is good news and glad tidings about a victorious Lord and a victorious Savior. It, it's about complete and total salvation that was obtained by Jesus Christ. That gives glory to God, you see. If it doesn't give glory to God, something's wrong with it. That's a big red flag. Always remember that. So they come and they take Stephen and they take him outside the city. When some of them were stoned, they took him outside the city. And they're going to stone Stephen to death. Now Stephen's going to be the third person that has died in the early stages of, of the New Testament. Uh, the first is John the Baptist. And we want to notice this, because when John the Baptist was slain, remember he was beheaded, he objected to Herod having the wife of his brother Philip. He says it's not lawful for you to have her. He wound up losing his life because of that. And the Jewish people allowed that from the standpoint they were passive in that. I don't read where they ever objected to that. I don't read where they came up in arms about that. So he's the first one to die, and they sinned against God the Father in doing that. The Lord Jesus Christ comes next to the picture. And now the people are going to ask and demand Pilate to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they're going to sin against God the Son. First God the Father, now God the Son. They demand, crucify him, crucify him, and release Barabbas. I can't uh, think about this without trying to point out to the Lord's people the choice that men make. He, if you've ever had a clear-cut choice in life, ever had one with just black and white, clear choice, I'm telling you, this is it. Here's Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was guilty of sedition. Barabbas was a thief. You're not going to find a character any more unsavory and evil and wicked than Barabbas was. And then you got the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of glory. The Lord Jesus Christ, perfect, sinless, holy, righteous, separate from sinners. You know, the only man who ever lived like that, the only person who could ever be described like that, over here. And when Pilate gave him the choice, what did they say? They said, release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Crucify him. And they did. And they did. And now we come to Stephen. If you go back and read the last part of Acts chapter 6, you'll find where those who brought the false witnesses, the Bible says, they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit whereby Stephen spoke. So, what's the next thing to do? If you can't resist the wisdom, can't resist the spirit, you do away with him. 
And so their alternative is to kill him. They were passive in John the Baptist's death. They asked for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and they actually take Stephen out and stone him outside the city. They sinned against God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When they take Stephen out to stone him, that's just snow coming off the roof, brother. Don't get alarmed. Okay? When they took Stephen out to stone him, Stephen done something very important. The Bible says Stephen looked up into heaven steadfastly. Now, a lot of people might have been looking down. They might have been so much in pain and so discouraged and, and so uh, uh, betrayed, felt betrayal and everything. They didn't just look down, but not Stephen. Stephen looks up steadfastly where? Right into heaven. Brother, all the way through the Bible, we find the benefits of looking up, don't we? Psalms 121, David says, I look unto the hills from which cometh my help and my strength. When you look at the life of Abraham, I can tell you, just trace the times that Abraham looked up and see what happened to him. When he looked up, you go to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. God tells Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, to a place, to Mount Moriah, to a mountain I'll show thee. And uh, there you offer your only begotten son. And Abraham's faithful. Abraham's obedient to that. And he gets to the top of the mountain and he's got his son Isaac uh, bound on the altar. He pulls back his knife and the Bible says, and then Abraham heard the voice, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham looked up. What did Abraham see? He saw a sacrifice take the place of his son. He looked up. That's where he looked. He looked up and there was the offering. There was a sacrifice. God provided a lamb to take the place of his son there on the altar. He looked up and saw that. God tells him later on in the last part of uh, Genesis chapter 14, I believe it is, he tells Abraham, he says, you look up. He says, and you look to the north, to the south, the east, and the west. He said, I'll give unto thee and thy seed all the land that thou seest right here. And you go and you walk in the breadth and the length of it. That's what Abraham saw when he looked up. I'm telling you today, brother, be sure you look up. Uh, don't, get, don't, don't stop part of the way. You got, you got to look up, right? Uh, the word look sometimes in the Bible has reference to our literal vision, but oftentimes has reference to our attitude. Like Hebrews chapter 12, Paul says, being compassed about by every uh, cloud, by all these clouds of witnesses, let us look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. You go to Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodly and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking unto Jesus, <laughs> who hath redeemed us from all iniquity. And look to Jesus as he comes back again the second time. I'm looking for him. I don't go out in the yard and just stare in the sky doing that. I'm looking for him in my mind, in my heart, and in my soul. I'm looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look up. Stephen looked up, and he looked right into heaven, my friends. I, I don't know how far heaven is above the earth, but God just opened it up and let him see it. <laughs> you know, when you see the moon, I think the moon, what's maybe 225,000 miles away or something like that, it looks like I could shoot it with a BB gun. You know, when you look up there, <laughs> you just feel like you could jump in a helicopter and just go right up there and land on it, don't it? It's a long ways away. And the sun, what, 93 million miles away, so they say? It, look how easy you see that. But God opened up the heavens. 
opened it up and Stephen looked up into heaven steadfastly. Looked up into heaven and what did he see? Remember what I told you how he started his message? He said, the God of glory. He's going to end that by seeing the glory of God. That'll encourage anybody, won't it? And that's what I like to see when I come here to our worship service. I want to see the glory of God. I, I want to uh, honor the Lord where I can see his glory. That's what Moses wanted to see so bad that uh, he said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said to Moses, no man's ever seen my face and live, but here's what I'm going to do. Here's a rock by me. Here, you stand on the rock. I'll put you in the cleft of it, and I'll cover you with my hand. And I'll pass by. When I pass by, you'll see my hind parts. And that's how God showed Moses his glory. He saw the glory of God and he saw something else. He saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Every other reference in the Bible, in the New Testament, of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he departed this world, it tells us he went to heaven and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We'll just use one, Hebrews 1, 3. Christ being the express image of his person, the brightness of his glory, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? Because the work he came to reconcile us, to redeem us, to justify us had been completed. It was over. And he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. Job well done. So why is he standing here? Because now he's our mediator between God and men. This one man, the man Christ Jesus, as our mediator, he can be touched the feelings of our infirmities and he's there to minister to us. He's there to help us. He's there to strengthen us and give us courage and, and to lead us and guide us and protect us. So he's standing. And that's how Stephen saw him. He saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of God to receive his Holy Spirit right into heaven itself. When I began to study the death of different people in the Bible, there's lessons I can learn in all their experiences. There's lessons right here in the death of Stephen that we need to take note of. There was a man one time, and he began to heckle a, a, a corner, corner street preacher. And I guess the preacher was trying to brag on the Lord, and one thing or another, he said, what did God give Stephen? He said, God gave Stephen grace to forgive his attackers. That's what he gave Stephen. He gave Stephen grace to forgive his attackers, and to pray for them. That's what he gave them. But I'm going to tell you something else he gave Stephen. He gave him a glorious view of heaven. He gave him a glorious view of the glory of God. He gave him a glorious view of the Lord Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of God. That's what he gave Stephen. <laughs> That's what he gave him. If you compare the two deaths, lies and deaths of the Lord Jesus Christ and Stephen, you'll see some remarkable similarities First of all, both men were rejected. Both men were despised. Both men had false witnesses brought against them. Both men end up in death. One was crucified and one was stoned. But both men, in their dying hour, prayed for forgiveness for those who had crucified and stoned them. Both of them did. And Lord Jesus Christ, one of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross is what? He says, he says in the, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. When Stephen is dying, he says, he called on the name of God and said, Lord God, receive my spirit into heaven. Some similarities, four or five similarities between the two men and what they experienced and their death.
Drop down to the next chapter. Well, right there, I'll just make this point in passing. The witnesses laid their clothes down at a young man's foot, feet whose name was Saul. That's Paul. Paul witnessed all that. And chapter 8 opens up by saying that how Paul made havoc of the church. And it says, then devout men, godly men, devoted men came and took Stephen's body and buried it. You know, one thing I've noticed how things have changed over time in my lifetime when it comes to death and burials and funerals. How now people hardly ever call somebody having a funeral, they call it having a celebration of life. When I read what the Bible says about things, I don't find that to be the case. You go back and you read in detail in the, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 25, you're going to find the death of Abraham. Earlier, you're going to find in chapter 22 details of the death of Sarah. And you find in those chapters when it describes the death of these two individuals, there was mourning. We go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, everything there is a purpose under the heavens, and a time and season, a purpose under the heavens, a time for this, a time for that. You got 28 times. You got 14 things with opposites. And one of them is this. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to rejoice. There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. These are opposites. I know this real good brother, his wife had died. He went to the funeral home. The funeral home director kept talking about, well, the celebration of life, celebration of life. He finally said, hold it, hold just a minute. We ain't having a celebration of life. We're having a funeral. Go read the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, and you'll find great detail, the passing away of Jacob. And you're going to find where when Jacob passed away, Joseph wept and kissed him, and he mourned for 70 days. Mourned. And they left that land to take him back to the land of Canaan to bury him. And Joseph and all of his brethren, his whole household, and the servants of Pharaoh. I mean, a long train on this journey. They go way back. They go back to travel miles and miles and miles to bury Jacob. And when they bury Jacob, it says they mourn for him for seven days. Mourn for him for several days. I, I don't want to sound to be critical about this but I have seen some situations someone died and you'd have thought everybody there was glad they died it's okay to mourn it's appropriate to mourn and you should mourn you've just lost a loved one you just lost a family member. You just lost a father, a mother, a son, or a daughter. There's nothing wrong with saying some things positive about them from the point of view uh, that there can bring a smile and a little laughter. That's not what I'm talking about. I attended a funeral a number of years ago, and a man got up to give the eulogy, and he took 45 minutes to give the eulogy, and when he got through, I thought, well, my gosh, he just described a playboy. He did. And then the preacher got up hurriedly, and claimed to have gone to the hospital and saved him at the last hour. Well, I know he didn't. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ saved him if he was saved at all. We find here when, when John the Baptist passed away, they took him, they buried him. Devout men, godly men buried Stephen. There was mourning. 
It's okay to mourn. I, I lost a father. I lost a mother. And I, I had sadness in my heart. I, had, I mourned within my soul. And at the same time, I rejoiced. That's not what I'm talking about. The child of God can, who understands the truth can mourn on one hand and rejoice in the other. Rejoice in knowing that that loved one has departed this life to be with the Lord of glory where you can see the very face of the Lord Jesus Christ without a veil. Be there with him. Have perfect peace and happiness and comfort and joy. Never again sadness will permeate that place, brethren. Never will trials and tribulations be allowed to enter into that place called heaven. And Stephen looked up steadfastly into heaven, a place he wanted to go. He looked up steadfastly into heaven and to a place where no doubt he had, had rejoiced in thinking about so many times in the past. I love singing those songs out of the hymn book about heaven, don't you? <laughs> I love singing those hymns. I, I love when I, and then the Bible says uh, uh, Stephen fell asleep. That's a description of God's children. When they take their last breath, they fall asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul said, I behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, Paul says, I not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them which are sleeping Christ, that you, uh, uh, that you uh, uh, whatever, uh, uh, others that have no hope. <laughs> when the child of God takes it in the last breath when Jesus came there to um, Jairus is when his daughter had passed away, his little 12-year-old daughter. Jesus said, Behold, she sleepeth. Aren't you glad about that? Each night when I go to bed, uh, I'm always looking forward to going to sleep. But I'll tell you what, I'm looking forward to waking up. <laughs> and when I wake up sometimes, I have to get up in the middle of the night occasionally. I have no idea what time it is until I look at the clock. <laughs> and it may say 2.30. It may say 5.45. You know, I have no idea how much time has gone by while I'm in a state of sleep. And the Lord's children down through the ages, through the centuries, who fall asleep in Christ, to them no more time has passed by than somebody who just died an hour ago. And we wake up in the morning of the resurrection be just like we fell asleep just shortly before that, right? Stephen fell asleep. Thank you so very much.